two brightest objects in the evening sky now, except for the moon, are Venus and Jupiter. They're getting closer. They're planets. Unlike the stars, the planets move across the sky. And these two are getting closer together. And on Wednesday night and Thursday night, they're going to be less than one degree apart. So we get a clear sky these next few nights. Go out and just enjoy the beauty of seeing the planets in motion. As you'll see Venus, the brightest object out there, above it and to the left, Jupiter, and they're going to be in conjunction this week, passing one another. I just enjoy going out and looking at that and tracking it and see the movements. So uh, the starry curtains, I would, I would take, you know, my kids out, a four-year-old, and say, who put the stars there? And they would get the right answer. God did. Now, if you have, ask a Ph.D. scientist, he can't get the right answer. He can't figure it out. He's got to have some other explanation of how the stars got there. It's incredible because they do not want to look at the face of God. Other things we see, clouds, wind, and lightning in verses 3 and 4, the rafters of your home, the rain clouds, the, uh, you ride up on the wings. Verse 4, flames of fire are your servants. That's lightning. Lightning gets your attention, doesn't it, if it strikes near? Sends you a message, makes you scared sometimes. God uses lightning as his servant. You place the world on its foundation so it never be moved. You clothe the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At the sound of your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, it fled away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. I kind of think these verses are really a flood passage describing what happened after the flood as the floodwaters went off the earth. It caused the mountains to raise up. It caused the deep sea trenches like the Mariana Trench to be leveled down, to be pushed down. And, and this is describing all the action of the water on the earth. God, the height of the mountains that he made after the flood and the big oceans and everything, God brought it into existence by his rebuke. Verse 10, then you set a firm boundary for the seas. Think about a firm boundary for the seas. Where are the boundaries for the seas? How many of you will go to the beach this summer? Beach, Myrtle Beach, Ocean Beach. You're there. Those, that's what this verse is talking about, the firm boundaries for the seas. So when you get to the ocean, just open up your Bibles and read Psalm 104.9. God has set the boundaries and he's ordained that they will not change. You make the springs, it says, valleys, seacoast. The seacoast, verse 9, are the boundaries where the ocean meets the land. Springs and streams, in verse 11. Water for the animals, verses 11 and 12. Rain on the earth that we must have. We're doing extra well this month, aren't we? We're, we're doing extra well. I don't know if we could export some to California, but right now uh, we're, getting, we're getting our fair dose. But uh, don't get overly concerned about the drought. It's just amazing to me as I listen to the news. Four years ago they were wringing their hands about the southeast, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, drought, all just terrible drought. This is due to all these atmospheric conditions. We've got some major problems here, all this drought. You know, over the next uh, 18 months in Alabama, Mississippi, it rained a lot and rained a lot, and they're all caught up in the water. So California will catch up sooner or later. It just goes through some cycles is what's going on. But the rain is so needed. Fruit, vegetation, and trees, verses 13 to 16. Living places for the animals, verses 17 and 18. The birds have their nests, the storks. The wild goats, the rock badgers, they all have specific places where they live. The sun and the moon in verse 19, the beauty of those objects in the sky. Then we have the day and night balance. Look at verses 20 to 23. You send the darkness and it becomes night. That's due to the rotation of the earth that God has ordained. 
when all the forest animals prowl about, nocturnal animals come out at night. The young lions roar for their food, but they are dependent on God. Wow. If the animals are dependent on God, maybe, maybe we are too. At dawn, they slink back into their dens to rest. Then people go off to their work. They labor until the evening shadows fall again. So in that agrarian society, that very rhythm of life, that daily rhythm of the night and the day and the work and the animals and, and how it goes on day after day, week after week. Verse 24 says, O Lord, what a variety of things you have made. Key word here is variety. This is what it says in the New Living Translation. How manifold are your works, King James. You know, creation, God's creation, we see his majestic design in doing so many wonderful different things. A key concept is variety. If evolution were true, you would tend to see very stasis, very static creation. If you went along lines of animals evolving over a long time, they would all lead down one trail and they would branch off a little bit. But what you would get is sameness. You would get uniformity. You would get mostly similarities. When we look at the animal kingdom, in the marine life, we see unusual variety. When you look at the planets, all the planets are unique. If the Big Bang were true and, and all this matter just exploded, the planets should be mostly alike. The 120 or 130 moons in our solar system, if they all came out of the same matter, they should all be alike, spinning in the same direction. All should be pretty uniform. But every planet is unique and different. Every moon that we've studied is unique and different. Moons that have volcanoes still erupting. How's that been going on for four and a half billion years? Uh, geysers, encephalus on Saturn, shooting up water geysers. How's that been going on for billions of years? What's the energy behind all that? Each moon is different. Each planet's different. If we're the Big Bang, you would see uniformity. But in the animal kingdom, key characteristic of God's design is what great variety there is. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the ocean, vast and wide, teeming with life of every kind. I like the way it words it in, um, in the King James Bible. It says, innumerable teeming things. Innumerable teeming things. Without number. Now, you might say at this point the psalmist is getting a little carried away when he says innumerable teeming things. He's, that's hyperbole. He, he's trying to make a point of some kind. He's just saying, oh, there's so much. If you go online and look up marine species you'll find out that we're discovering, on average, about 2,000 new marine species every year. So if you have work days, you don't work on Saturday or Sunday, you have work days, that's almost 9 to 10 new species a day we're discovering in the oceans. And here's the other shocking thing. Many marine biologists say we have not even numbered half of all the species that are in the oceans. We keep finding new things. As we go deeper and deeper, we're finding more stuff. And so we don't know how many species are out there Maybe we've discovered a half or a third. So when the psalmist says innumerable teeming things, modern science can't count them. It's very true. See the ship sailing along, Leviathan, one of the great creatures of the past that played in the sea. Every one of these depends on you. You might mark that word, depends. All of nature, the birds. Does God feed the birds? Did God make it so they could have food? Does God take care of their needs? Will God take care of your needs? When you supply it, they gather. You open your hand to feed them, they are satisfied. But if you turn away, they panic. When you take away the breath, they die. When you send your spirit, new life is born. 
to replenish all things on the earth. So God is continually even replenishing the things by the systems and the science that he's set up. And then the conclusion of this in verses 31 to 35. Here's where we ought to be. Wow. When I think of the glory and the majesty, the variety, and all the provisions of God for me, what should I say? How should I respond? May the glory of the Lord last forever. The Lord rejoices in all he has made. That's an interesting statement. God rejoices in what he's made. Should we rejoice in what God's made? I'd like us to say together today, this is a psalm of praise. Let me finish, and I'd like us to join in. Praise together. The earth trembles at his glance. The mountains burst into flame at his touch. That's a volcano. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God to my last breath. May he be pleased by all these thoughts about him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let all sinners vanish from the face of the earth. Let the wicked disappear forever. Interesting thought right there. Let the sinners vanish. Let the wicked disappear. You know, there's a lot of people living out of harmony with God's creation. They, they, in a way, they almost don't deserve to live here. By God and His grace, His mercy, He's put them here. And He's put, put them here for us to know and be a light to them. But it's like, if you don't appreciate what God's done, one of these days, you're going to be cleansed off the earth when God comes in judgment. And He's going to establish a kingdom where people can truly thank and praise Him for His creation. And as for me, the psalmist, as for me, I will praise the Lord. And then one grand hallelujah at the end, praise the Lord. Could you say those two phrases with me? Hallelujah and praise the Lord. Ready? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I hope today when you think about God's majestic creation, you can say hallelujah and praise the Lord. I want to consider some specific evidences. And here's the summary verses. Uh, Back up one more, Randy. I just, yeah, you were already on the screen there. How manifold are your works? That's where we get this variety. That's from the King James Manifold, the great variety in verse 24. You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. We send up, um, we send up rovers and stuff to Mars, and they're scratching through the dirt. They're rolling along, and they're scratching through the dirt to find what? A molecule of life. And here on earth... We can't stop life from just going. You know, your garden, how it is right now with the weeds, right? You have to beat it with a hoe. You have to fight it. It just keeps growing and growing. And we're spending billions of dollars to try to find a molecule of life someplace on other planets. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. Here's some uh, specific... May the Lord rejoice in his works. So if God rejoiced in his works, so should we. All right, Randy, I think we're ready now for number one. Here's some evidences, I think, of God's majestic design in the world he's created. And I, am, I don't want to use science to defend the Bible. That's not it. The Bible stands on its own. The Bible is trustworthy. But there are an awful lot of people that say the Bible's full of errors, and it's not trustworthy. And it's not trustworthy when it speaks to the issue of science. And if I could just do a little bit of chipping away at that today to say, When the Bible says things that touch on the area of science, it's very trustworthy in that area too, just like it is in all areas. Science is nature. Nature is what God made. That's what science ought to be, the study of God's creation. And that's why science ought to have a lot of interest for all believers to see God's majesty and the honor that he has in his creation. Johann Kepler, the man that discovered the laws of planetary motion, honored God in all that he did. And he said, we scientists are priests of the Most High God. We are priests of the Most High God. So if you truly want to be a scientist that honors God, you're a priest, a minister serving him. 
Here's some of those evidences. The Earth-Sun distance, we're 93 million miles. We're just the ideal distance to maintain life on the Earth. If we were about 5 or 6% further away, it would be too cold. We couldn't sustain our growing seasons. If we were 5 or 6 million miles closer, it would be too hot. Things would burn up and dry up. We have a diagram here, Randy, of the um, Earth-Sun distance. This is the uh, in kilometers. And uh, in kilometers... This week, July the 4th, coming up, we'll be at what's called aphelion. We're actually a little further away in the summertime. And uh, so here in the northern hemisphere, that will temper temper our heat a little bit. We'll have a little 3 or 4% less temperature difference because we're a little further away in the summer. That's coming up. But the distance, it's just perfect. It's just right. Meanwhile, here's what science is doing. They're sending up uh, probes and telescopes to look for life on other planets. A passionate search, I would call it. The passionate search. And I have Astronomy Magazine. I have been subscribing a number of years. I love it. It's a great magazine. It's written by evolutionists. Some of the articles are kind of mind-boggling, but I usually there's good science in it too. And I learn a lot from this magazine. But here's what some recent magazines. How astronomers will find another Earth. Will curiosity find life on Mars? The Kepler space search for life in other worlds. The hunt for other worlds. What happens when we detect alien life? Evolutionists are convinced. Nothing unique about Earth. This is not special. There's got to be plenty of places where there's life on Earth. And so they keep looking at distant suns to find evidences of planets around them. And what they find out, what they're searching for, is what's called the Goldilocks planet. Do you remember the story of the three bears? Uh, what, was pro- what was the problem with um, Papa when Goldilocks found uh, Papa's uh, porridge? What was the problem with poppies? Too hot. What was the problem with Mama's porridge? Too cold. But baby's porridge was just right, and she ate the whole bowl. Scientists are struggling to find the Goldilocks planet. Not too hot, not too cold. It's got to be just right to sustain life. Most of the planets they're finding are the size of Jupiter. They're extremely hot. They have several thousand degrees surfaces. Some of them are so close to the planets. They're whipping by so fast. Um, Life is impossible for these other planets, but they're going to continue their search. So we're just the right distance. God has created for us to sustain life on Earth. Another major creation is the tilt of the Earth on its axis. This is where we get the seasons, the growth cycle of everything, the trees, our plants, The tomatoes you have, the cucumbers, the beans, everything is determined by the tilt of the earth on its axis, of course. Next slide, Randy shows a picture of the tilt. And so over here, when we're tilted away, you see the axis on the right, if you can pick that up, the northern hemisphere is tilted away, and that's our wintertime. We're over here in the summer right now. On this side of the diagram, the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun. So we get lots of daylight, lots of daylight. The further north you go, the more daylight you get. You realize that? Fairbanks, Alaska, their nighttime right now is only about three hours long because this whole part of our hemisphere is lit up by the tilt of the earth. Very foundational to making the seasons, otherwise we wouldn't have them. This leads us to the rotation speed of the earth. The earth rotates on its axis in 24 hours. Would you like to live on Jupiter? Jupiter's rotation speed is 10 hours. Uh, what would your day be like on Jupiter if it was a 10-hour day, night and day? Mercury, its rotation speed is 59 days. That means daytime is 30 days a month. 
their daytime would last a whole month. Now, here's what I'd like you to say, some of these things. I intended to start with this, but the question about all these things, again, the secular scientists say all of this is just chance. We just happen to be a planet that came out and the matter formed together here, and it's just chance that we're right distance. It's just a fluke of nature. It's just an accident. You can read that in the science books when they come up with these particular things. They see evidence of design and say, no, that's not design. It just happens to be by chance the way it is. So are these things evidence of design or chance? What would you say about the Earth's distance from the sun? Is that design or chance? Class? Design. It's design. The tilt of the Earth on its axis, would that be design or chance? It's design. uh, Back at the rotation speed, let's see. Which one do I want to pick up here on the rotation speed of the day-night balance? Just think of the day-night balance how that's built into your life. Eight hours or so, eight to ten hours for work and travel, seven or eight hours for rest and sleep, three or four hours for grooming and uh, eating, an hour or two for errands, and two hours for church softball. It works out. (laughs) It works out really well. So uh, what a balance that God has put there. Uh, Nitrogen-oxygen balance is another one the nitrogen-oxygen balance. There's 79% nitrogen in our atmosphere and 21% oxygen. You realize, of course, you learned somewhere in science class, didn't you, that oxygen is necessary for burning? And if you want to get a fire started, extra oxygen makes it burn? What if it were the other way around? What if we had 80% oxygen and only 20% nitrogen? Because nitrogen is very stable. It doesn't react. It's extremely stable. But oxygen is very reactive, and it's necessary for our breathing, but it also is what is needed for the fuel for fires. If we had much more oxygen, do you realize how hard it would be to get fires out? It's possible that places that's where fires started, they just so much would be consumed and burned down. There's got to be the right balance there. Photosynthesis for plant life. Photosynthesis. How did photosynthesis start if evolution were true, if it just came gradually? Could you have plants without photosynthesis? Would plants exist without photosynthesis so that photosynthesis had to evolve? Or would photosynthesis have to evolve first in order to produce plants? But but how would it evolve if you don't have any plants? Well, they tried to tackle this problem in Astronomy Magazine, how photosynthesis works. And the gist of this thing is trying to figure out how it got started. What prompted the evolution of photosynthesis on Earth? Unfortunately, evidence of how ancient bacterial organisms first harnessed solar energy remains hidden in slabs of metamorphic rock on crags and mountainous outcrops in places like the Pilbara region of Western Australia and frigid West Greenland. Yeah, right. In other words, we don't know how it started, but somewhere in the rocks of Greenland, there's a key that we're going to find one of these days that will tell us how photosynthesis got started. Here's a lady by the name of Nancy Kayang. She's a biometeorologist at Nassard. No one knows how it happened or even how the molecular precursors to the green chlorophyll pigments that harvest sunlight first arose. They are too complex to form out of the muck. She admits it couldn't evolve, but I can't explain how it got there. When she thinks about a crater, nope, can't go there, can't accept that. Photosynthesis class, design or chance? Design. It's got to be design. God's design. The uh, hydrologic water cycle. Hydrologic water cycle. Actually, hydrology means the study of water, so I've got a redundancy here. I've got the water cycle, water cycle. 
Um, turn your Bibles to, well, let me put it up. You might want to turn your Bibles, Psalm 135, 6, and 7. Psalm 135, 6, and 7. And notice what's going on here. We have the oceans of the world, and we have evaporation going on, and the evaporation goes up to the clouds, and then the sun is shining, Ecclesiastes 1.5. Verse 6, it talks about the wind circuits, and the wind's going around the world, and the weather patterns. So the wind blows it over the land, and then it comes down in the form of rain. Let me put these two verses on the screen. Psalm 135.7. I like the way the uh, King James has it here. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. All right. I got a question for you to think about. He causes the vapors to ascend. You've got to think before you answer this. It's counterintuitive. If I add water vapor to air, will it make the air heavier or lighter, that given unit of air? He causes the vapors to do what? Ascend. When you add water vapor to air, moisture to air makes it lighter because the water molecules are replacing nitrogen. Nitrogen is number seven on the chart of elements. Nitrogen is 14 times heavier. Each atom of nitrogen is 14 times heavier than each atom of hydrogen. Hydrogen is lighter. So you take H2O, mostly hydrogen, put it in the atmosphere, and it's buoyant. That's why for the most clouds, clouds go up. Is that design or chance? Certainly it's designed. God made the water vapors to ascend all over the earth. And then look at what happens. Next verse. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. It is he who turns darkness into morning and day into night. It is he who does what? He Read it with me. It is he who draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. God draws up water from the oceans and brings it over and rains it down on the land. That's a beautiful thing to think about. It's a wonderful thing. Amos mentions it twice. Next verse. You should have this in your Bible. This is the New Living Translation, I think. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where which the rivers come, they return again. Every day, the water cycle is going on. In one second's time, out of the Amazon River, the biggest river discharge in the world, comes 55 million gallons of water a second. 55 million gallons per second. Around the world, there's 250 million gallons per second of water being discharged. In a minute's time, it's about 5 billion gallons. Can you comprehend those, that number? Now, where is that water coming from? you realize the amount of oceans it takes to evaporate the water? What's going on is constantly all over the world, water's evaporating. It's going up in the air. The water vapors, they're rising. They're rising all over the earth at the rate of 250 gallons per second. That's why we have to have more oceans than land. If we had more land than oceans, the water cycle wouldn't work. There wouldn't be enough water to evaporate to keep this cycle going. The thing that keeps the cycle going is the 70% oceans to the 30% land and this continual It says the waters run into the sea and yet the sea is not full. If you could stop and think about all the rivers of the world now running into the oceans, did it change anything at Myrtle Beach today? It didn't. So is the water cycle, what do you think? Design or just chance? It's got to be God's design. Just a couple more in our time remaining today. I was a privilege to go to see a solar eclipse back in 2006 
I went over to Africa to see our friends, the Gales and the Bears over there, and uh, look at their hospital work, but we timed it together at the time also of a total solar eclipse. And when you read about the, in the astronomy magazines, the next slide, Randy, will have a picture of it. Here's how a solar eclipse works. Basically, the moon, solar eclipse, the moon gets between the sun and the earth, and it makes a little path across the earth, and it blocks out the earth, and you have a total darkness. In the middle of the day, you have total darkness. A phenomenal thing. We have not had a solar eclipse anywhere in the United States, a total solar eclipse, in 38 years. We have not had a total solar eclipse across the central United States in almost 100 years. In August of 2017, a little over two years away, we're having one that's coming right through the United States. We're already in the astronomy club making our plans for how we're going to go view this. It's a phenomenal thing to do. The next slide shows what we see. This is a picture taken by Judy Bowen. I was there in Africa with her, and she got this picture. When the sky turns dark, and you can see the planets at 10.30 in the morning, and you can see the stars, and everything gets dark, and the birds get quiet. And for three and a half minutes, you're in darkness. And then it comes out. When it goes into darkness, she got a picture. Judy took this picture. Next picture, it's called a diamond ring. Can you see the circle with the big diamond? It's a di- I told her she might see Bailey's beads or diamond rings. A diamond ring is created by, uh, what's the black thing in the foreground of that picture? What's blocking the sun? Uh, the moon's blocking the sun. But the moon is not perfectly curved. It has hills and craters and mountains. And so I told her, right when the moon gets to the edge of the sun, a low spot in the moon, a valley, could let a beam of light through. You might get a phenomenon. It'll last about two seconds called a diamond ring. And she had never taken anything like this before. Her solar filter was made out of cardboard. I took her the paper. She read online how to do it. I knew she had a good camera. I knew she was going to be able to get a picture. When I took this picture, when I saw this picture, I said, Judy, that's as good as I've seen in any science magazine. And it did in my astronomy magazine. They've used it three times. I emailed it to them, and Judy's picture's been in there. Phenomenal thing. But if you read science books about it, you know what they say? It's a freak of nature. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the solar system or the universe that we're aware of, but it's something of God's beauty. We're going to have to uh, wrap up today, and I just want to show you a video in closing of blood clotting. Let's go forward a couple of, see if we can get that video up. Ocean tides or God's washing machine. Uh, another, uh, let's go through, we'll just run through these, Randy, a little bit. We'll show this one, see if this video runs on ocean tides. It might help us. No, didn't, okay, let's go on. There's one on blood clotting here, too. I was hoping that video I could show you. Skip forward. The origin of the moon, trying to explain that. Just think of what the psalmist says in 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And uh, he has a, there's a video clip of a little girl. You can get that online uh, by going to Little Girl Explains Blood Clotting. Why doesn't your blood clot just routinely? What happens when you get a cut? What keeps the cut, what makes the cut, that cut stop bleeding? It's because a whole bunch of things happen. Platelets and other stuff go there to where that cut is. They sense that you're hurt. There senses of pain. It sends all the stuff that's needed to that cut, and you have a clot, and the bleeding stops. Clots can be dangerous things, of course, if you have clots inappropriately when you, places you don't really need them. But that little girl explains the uh, blood clots and how it's a work, and, it, and all the factors come together 
It's beyond our ability to even fully explain what causes that. Why doesn't our blood clot at other times? Why does it only clot when we get a cut? Would that be an evidence of chance, or is that design? That's certainly design. So many other things to think about the beauty and the way in which we're made. The beauty in which... I don't think you're, you're going to... Will that video play? Okay. I cut my finger this morning, and it's bleeding. But if I put this band-aid on, it'll stop in a while. Did you ever wonder how it happens? I mean, does blood just stop, because that's what it's supposed to do? Why doesn't our blood clot before we get a cut? I guess we just die then, because all our blood would harden up and stop flowing. Did you ever wonder? Did you ever wonder why? Blood clotting is a very complex process involving thousands and millions of triggers that have to act just perfectly with one another to create the final outcome. Let me see if I can tell you how this works. First, you get a little cut like mine. Imagine you're in my bloodstream. There's a bunch of traffic going on, and pretend you're floating around with a kajillion other red blood cells, all with oxygen backpacks. Everything slows down when you get near the cut. This is called vascular constriction. In short, your body limits the flow near the cut because it knows something is wrong. And of course, you feel pain. So, a protein in your body called fibrinogen arrives on scene. Fibrinogen is primarily responsible for stimulating platelet clumping. Thrombin essentially cuts off the ends of the fibrinogen. Platelets clump by binding to collagen. Upon activation, platelets release adenosine 5-diphosphate, ADP, and TXA2, which activate additional platelets, serotonin, phospholipids, liver proteins, and other important proteins for the coagulation cascade. Activated platelets change their shape to accommodate the formation of the plug. Oh, sorry, I digress. Anywho, this complex thing called the Stewart factor converts prothrombin to thrombin, thereby converting fibrinogen to fibrin. By the way, the Stewart factor wasn't active until it was activated by the Christmas factor. Okay, there's a lot more to this process, like this goes there, binding, recepting, who knows what. It's very complicated. But the net result is a clot. Stops the bleeding, cut heals, clot dissolves, you're on your way. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? What would you say, design or chance? God's marvelous design. I love it when she says, but I digress. <laughs> um, that's part of the series that we've watched with several people called The Truth Project, and the science part in that Truth Project is very, very powerful if you ever get a chance to see it. Just a couple final thoughts. By the way, um, I was able to really enjoy that solar eclipse in 2006. And so if you, um, it's on YouTube, my presentation to our astronomy club. It's a 30-minute long clip. So if you go on YouTube and you type in search George Michael solar eclipse, it's the first thing that comes up. And it says, a wonder to behold. What a wonder to behold. So you can learn a lot more about that eclipse and the experience of what went on there. I do need to warn you, if you just search for George Michael, you'll get another guy. And, uh, <laughs> That, that, and I don't know that your pastor would approve. God's marvelous design. 
We were fearfully and wonderfully made, David said. As I keep exploring and learning, I just see more and more evidence of God's love for me. Why did he put all this together the way he did? Why did he design so much for us to be seen? You know, sadly it says in Romans, what do people do when they see the evidence of God's majesty? They suppress it. They reject it. They turn away from it. And um, without a desire for God, that's the common lot of people. They've rejected God. But I hope today you've just had a little taste of thinking about, God, what a wonderful creator you are, the glory of the earth, all the things that you're designed, the innumerable teeming things, the, just the day and the night, the, the earth and its creation and how you've put it all together. What a wonderful God you are. Let's all say hallelujah, praise the Lord together. Hallelujah, praise the Lord.